Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 252. We shall have to do something about this friendship. This week, we're discussing episode 2 of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, How is Lady Pole? And season 5, episode 10 of Angel, Soul Purpose. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. Um, I really wanted you to say, Mr. Norrell. Mr. Norrell. Uh, in, uh, in, in that opening. Um, but yeah, anyway. Um, I, I try to infuse the word friendship with the kind of dripping disdain yeah. that LaSalle's gives it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we'll talk about Dry Light and LaSalle's. Um, and then the other sort of comedic couple, uh, Segundus and Honeyfoot. Um, but uh, I did want to start off kind of talking about you know we actually haven't um i don't think we brought up before uh any production notes or anything and i wasn't sure if you wanted to i mean i guess we did talk a little bit about like the overall production Mm -hmm. of the series but i didn't know if there was anything specific to the episode that you wanted to talk about um yeah i didn't really have anything like like with class um I feel like because they're more self-contained, like a, a short kind of yeah. mini series or like a, a series that was sort of cut short, um, it's like not a lot changes between the time it started and the time it finished. Whereas like, I feel like what's fun about, you know, Doctor Who and Buffy and Angel is like charting the the comings and goings and the rise and fall of all these different people who are involved. Whereas like, sure with these ones, it's like, yeah, Peter Harness wrote all of it, <laughs> and Toby <laughs> Haynes all directed things. all of it. Yeah, <laughs> and like they made it over whatever period of weeks or months, and then it was done, and that was the end. Right. So, I mean, there might be thrilling tales of shooting individual episodes, but like I haven't dug sufficiently deep to really be able to pull out those sorts of anecdotes. And and that's fine. Like I don't. I don't want to force the issue either, but because uh, right before we hit record, we were talking about um, some of the things we do want to mention for the Angel episode. So I just, I realized like, oh, we didn't really have anything for this. And that's totally fine and appropriate, perhaps. So um, just wanted to sort of mention it. I did want to mention kind of before we get into the um, specifics of the uh, characters and all of that, um, the sort of framing of the episode, though, because I really like and I, I don't think I noticed this. Um, when I first watched it, you know, like whatever, a couple of years ago or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, when I don't even, I don't, I mean, my memory isn't always the greatest. I don't remember this coming up in the, um, Mythgard Academy thing either, but just the, the, the framing of this episode happening on the different coastlines, mm-hmm. uh, of France and then, mm-hmm. of, um, England. I mean, it's not exact framing because, like, the actual ending is uh, in the auction house. So there's like the, right. you know, thing there. But like, there there is the um, parallel, I guess, within the episode of um, starting out with the ships. You know, the the sort of ghost ship blockade mm-hmm. of France, and then um, the the 
I guess we don't ever actually learn if it's the the if the cause of the ship running aground onto the horse sand is um the result of Mr. Mr. Norrell's um you know uh I, spell I I think I think that that's they the implication they like they speculate that that's what it is so well, I guess that's it what, doesn't like that's what I mean I don't they I don't know if we ever they say something about the invisible beacons and it's like yeah that would be the peril of invisible beacons is your ships might run into right. them so it's not sort of implied yeah they they definitely say it i what i meant was like i don't know if we get the actual confirmation of that i mean you sure. get this look from strange like yeah that's probably like oh okay that makes sense right. but <laughs> i also like in that scene i mean i know i'm jumping ahead obviously but like i also like in that scene where he's like oh, well, I'll just write it. And then, no, you'll break the keel. And, oh, okay, well, I'll just, you know, increase the wind, you know, the existing wind, just give it a little push. No, it, it'll, you'll bash it on the shore. And it's like, he clearly knows nothing about, like, shipping and, you know, right. <laughs> sailing or anything. Yeah. And uh, everything, you know. So it finally he's like, fine, I'll make sand horses <laughs> and, like, push it out to sea. Like, yeah. if everything else is wrong, like, how how angry he gets and like that seems to be the source at least if not the source of his magic like the source of like some of the power behind the magic right like, like he channels his frustration into the <laughs> angst of making his um, seahorses yeah and i guess uh, like in a way even though like you said they're not the timing isn't perfect it's not like they're perfectly evenly spaced throughout the episode and there is that little scene at the end but there's almost like three, like rather than just right. bookends, there's kind of three beach scenes, like, you know, like right. the, the French ships at the beginning. And then there's Norrell's little, um, just kind of Display waving his hands and then <laughs> it is done, um, with right. the sea beacons. And then there's Strange's like big kind of flashy sand horses at the end. So yeah. like there, you know, it's not even bookends. It's like there's three different data points throughout the right throughout the episode right. um which kind of introduces us to the war effort obviously we're like strange is sent to the front at the at the end of the episode so there's more to right. come but this is sort of all of these kind of beach scenes are kind of keeping us i don't know informed as to reminding us that the war is happening and what are the kinds of things that magicians can contribute to this cause yeah well yeah and and there's even more than just that you get like um you know norrell looking into i i want to do the drama norrell, but yeah. um you know norrell uh looking into the basin with the water and you know like the silver basin there and and you know getting like so this is I think the, you know, the funny thing here is, um, so like, yeah, the first episode, it was more just like, oh, discovering that there are magicians in England and whatever here. And obviously we get like strange and oral meeting and kind of their, their stuff here. But, but yeah, we're getting drawn into like, okay, what are the implications now for the larger thing? And of course, the first thing the government does with it is to weaponize mm. magic. Right. Like, I mean, yeah, that's what governments are good for, mm -hmm. <laughs> like is is turning, you know, that against your enemies and figuring it out. Um, and. And for the what's interesting and what I find 
what I find interesting from Norrell's character is with the war effort. Um, so one, there, there's the total sycophantic aspect to it or, or the, like, you know, for being a clear introvert, right? Like, you know, and I, and I have to say, I, I take to heart all of everything that he says about books and does, yeah. you know, with, but like. Relate like, to Norrell a little too You, well. you want to take 40 books <laughs> what, and, and travel around with them? Like. Yeah. It's so you very don't, you don't dirty. Travel. It's so dirty. Yeah, exactly. Um, or, you know, like, you know, if you have a book, you're not, you're never alone. Right, right. Right. Like, um, so like, I, I take all of that to heart, but also like there's that there's that introvert coming out of his shell kind of thing too of he's clearly being praised for his ability mm -hmm. and like you know <laughs> i mean having like you know the whoever it is is it draw light or whoever who's like yelling into the basin at you know whoever they're seeing like on the other side he's like they, they can't <laughs> um but but he's getting praise right like he's yeah. getting he's getting sort of the attention that he feels he deserves and i mean doesn't seem too upset by the uses to which mm. you know his abilities are being put and and i i mean i don't like i'm not gonna come down on like napoleon's side of like like he's clearly you know napoleon's going around you know conquering the continent right like that's mm -hmm. that that's the war we're talking about yeah, right? yeah. like the napoleonic mm -hmm. um i did think about that for a second i'm like wait i said napoleon and then i just realized like i second guess myself um like yeah napoleon is clearly an aggressor here and so like i think we're inclined to be on the side of the british and and you know obviously don't want you know someone just going around conquering all the other countries but at the same time, like, you know, is there a Manhattan Project sort of aspect to this mm -hmm. of like the smartest and brightest and most capable people working on, you know, sort of weapons that are unheard of? I mean, here it's magic, not atomic, but it's definitely this idea of like, you know, is it is it the fact that he's kind of getting everything he's always wanted and like is magic is there a true respectability to magic if if he's actually using it for you know to kill people and, and or at mm -hmm. least you know put them at harm so clearly defenses you know around the the island are not a bad thing like it's it's defensive you know you don't want your people to be attacked and like all of that that's good but then um I think we'll see more probably in, in the next thing when we get to, you know, what Strange is doing on the continent and stuff like with some of the offensive magic and which, I mean, we don't see Norrell doing it, but like you get the impression that he totally could or, mm -hmm. or would. Um, and you, like you get like draw lights, a little intrude, like, oh, we can do all, all manner of weather, right? Like, like we can attack them with all the weather um, that we want, <laughs> you know, um, and that kind of thing. Um where you know it becomes maybe a little more of a ethical question of like to what extent should you be using right. these powers to you know facilitate warfare or or even directly cause harm to people as part of the war effort um yeah it it kind of puts me in mind of the whole 
argument in the last episode of, um, well, like, a, a gentleman would never do magic. Like, gentlemen study magic. They don't do it. But you don't have the same ethical debate about would gentlemen use their, like, now that we've established that magic is real and gentlemen are in fact performing it, we're not having those debates about what kind of magic a gentleman should be doing. Like there, no. there, there, there's vinculus and the whole street right. magician. But I, my, I think, I think how the argument isn't that you earn your title as a gentleman by the type of magic you perform. It's that if you are not gentlemanly, then your magic is disreputable. So because you're a street magician, you know, you are normal once you sort of banish well, from the world of magic. But it's not, it doesn't seem to make an ethical difference what you're using your magic for. What? You know, his status as a gentleman sort of puts out of question, like, the ethics of what he's doing. And, I mean, you kind of mentioned, like, the, the one thing on Norrell's side is, like, yeah, he declines to hit the invitation to go to the front himself. And all the and a lot of the spells he seems to be suggesting are more defensive, like the beacons, like you get the sense that he's being much more cautious than the government would like him to be. Like they're looking for something more proactive and aggressive sure. and warlike. And he is more, you know, he is more um I don't know if peaceful is the right word, but like just, but. Well, I think he, I, uh, but without, without tying the political connotations to it, I think he's more conservative about it. Sure. Like, right. Like it, yes, more in the sense of withholding and in the and, sense of cautious and yeah. Right. But I think that I don't necessarily get the sense that he's those things for ethical reasons. You know, it's not that like, he doesn't want to go abroad or doesn't want to kind of be in battle because he's has sort of pacifist ideals. Um, it's more that he isn't interested in the travel. Um, sure. and, and, he doesn't, and he doesn't want to be that far away from his books. And he maybe doesn't, he lacks the imagination to be, you know, creative with his spells in the way that strangers like it. I don't think it's that he's too peaceful to really get into the war effort. It's like, it's, it just doesn't really occur to him how else to do it. Um, so like, I kind of don't even want to give him the credit there for like the, the good points that he's sort of, you know, like his caution yeah. isn't to do with, his worry about is this gentlemanly is this the right thing to do it's kind of just that he doesn't really think outside of his box um mm -hmm. of what's the most comfortable and kind of i don't know convenient for him right so to go back to like the Winkulus and, and like he talks about like street magicians and stuff. Like I, I I agree with you that like the implication there is that the way in which we're making or keeping magic respectable is by stopping people who are 
unrespectable from doing anything called magic, mm-hmm. whether it's actual magic or trickery or, or whatever. But like, it doesn't even, I get the sense that like for Norrell, it wouldn't even matter if like what Winkulus did, Vinculus or whatever, um, if, if what he does is truly magic or not. Right. Like, it doesn't matter, like, if it's, if it's magic or if he's just, like, got some cards up his sleeve or something. Right. Like, the, it's the fact that he's unrespectable. Yeah. Disrespectable? What's the correct word there? Uh, shameful? I don't, like, whatever, like, the opposite right. of gentlemanly. Yeah. In the sense that he's, doesn't have, he's not, like, part of the gentry or whatever, like. Right. Um. Right, right. His gentlemanliness is not something he can possibly earn. It's, right. It has um, nothing to do with the things that he does or right. the or the or if he's helping people or not. Um Right. It it's all tied to class, essentially. Like who he who he is, how he was born, how he lives, you know, the way his sort of you know his life appears on the outside is sort of what determines if he's a gentleman or not. And if magic is gentlemanly, then it kind of follows that only gentlemen, as we define them, can perform it. Um, So, yeah, so I don't, you know, ethics mostly don't come into it. I mean, there is the question about uh, Norrell saying we can't raise Admiral Nelson from the grave because he would have, we would have come a a good deal unraveled. Um, But like, but that's a practical matter. That's a practical matter. And like, he's like, think of, think of the state of what they would be. And they're like, Oh, Oh yes. That's yeah. Okay. So they might be a little decayed by now. And is it like, he's already gone down that road and doesn't really want to pull at that thread anymore. Like, it, it let's not let's the whole episode is Norrell deflecting from what he's done with Lady Pole. And so that needs yeah. to be a one time deal. And he needs to find this is a great excuse that like he can say like Nelson's been dead too long. It wouldn't work. But like, again, it's a little too late to oppose resurrecting people on ethical grounds now he's sort of doing it for like self-preservation and not wanting anybody to know that yeah i summoned a fairy and now he's sort of loose and maybe i'm not quite as powerful as i you know implied that i was yeah no i i definitely agree there and i'm glad you brought up the raising more people from the dead because i there's definitely an aspect of that where I like, he even says at some point in here, right? Like that he basically doesn't care about lady pole. He cares about keeping magic respectable. Right. Like, right. right. I don't remember the exact phrase. I don't think. I right. Wrote it down, right. And, like, and, and Walter Pole's reputation, like the whole oh, reason, is that it? like it's the, yeah, yeah. It's like that the whole reason she's back is because he, Walter Pole is his sort of, it's his sponsor, his patron, like, and and yeah, needs yeah. he needs him to be successful, um, right. and he needed a dowry in order to do that. And now he's got this wife and this money and this reputation, and it's all about preserving Walter Pole's sort of status, which is right. coming unraveled. 
Um, right, right. So yeah, so the war effort is definitely interesting. And yeah, I mean, we'll see more of that with Strange over there. I mean, and interesting too of the, I mean, of course the reasons, like Strange is all about the learning too. So like mm. so we talked a lot about Noro and sort of his ethics or lack thereof. Um, in some cases, like Strange also, like he seems excited to go, mm-hmm. like like he wants to learn and to use his magic for new and sundry purposes. And maybe, I mean, I don't want to get too much implication like these, like, like that both of them would be okay with just like wiping out, you know, thousands of people in one fell swoop or anything. Like, I don't, I don't think we have enough evidence for that yet. Yeah. But like, or, you know to deny it though either but like he certainly seems like he knows what war is and he seems excited to go and contribute like magically and like i don't know if it doesn't cross his mind that he'll actually be put in the positions of killing people or at least helping to kill people but Mm -hmm. like that doesn't seem to be a major consideration with him like Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't seem to stop strange doesn't seem to stop and think like Oh, now if I go use my magic on the continent, then right. you know it'll. What be, am I using it for? Yeah, it, yeah, it'll be to kill Frenchmen and right. you know whatever. Um, and so yeah, I like just to point out that he seems perfectly fine with going and doing that, whatever that entails. But not quite the same as Norrell. Like Norrell is, you know, all about like bringing English magic back and making it respectable and, you know, having, having it be a gentlemanly pursuit. Strange is just sort of like willing to go where the knowledge leads him. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, so, I mean, just, just step back then to the beginning, like that's kind of where we are when we first see him in this episode at, um, Oh, what was the name of the, Miss, uh, oh, Miss Absalom's, Miss Absalom's, uh, manor or whatever it was, trying, right. trying to raise her, um, which apparently, uh, this place was built from stones, uh, of the Raven King's castle. I mean, you know, we don't know if that's true, but certainly there seems to be some magic being done there, so it's not like wholly, mm-hmm. uh, out of the question, perhaps. Um, uh, and we see him doing his magic. But, like, again, there's, like, the frustration, right? Like, he raises her. And somehow, Segundus is able to uh, enter into this dream. Like, mm. he, he, he can sense, like, we don't get the sense that Segundus can quite do magic, although we've seen him trying. Like, we saw him try at the beginning of the right. last episode, and right. it was, it wasn't working. So, he at least has a sensitivity to it that... Like, even yeah. the other magicians, quote-unquote, of your, um, didn't right. seem to have. Right, It's the kind of the first evidence that Segundus is somewhat magical himself. Like, because we yeah. certainly saw... Or at least sensitive saw, to magic. Yeah, yeah, like, we certainly saw his interest and his passion, and we saw him attempting it. But, like, this is the first thing he's ever done that, like, actually seems to set him apart from the like regular... Like Honeywell or... Yeah, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, um, 
Yeah, and certainly so Arabella is just like in the house, like making having a picnic. Yeah, yeah, like making the picnic. You know, put setting out the eggs and whatnot. Um, right, right. Yeah, like and like she's just like reading a book and just like, oh, I'm just here for you know some moral support or whatever. Right, I guess. Right. Um, and I, I don't mean like we'll talk about her too. Like I don't mean to like diminish her because I, you know, she certainly does her thing. But um, the idea there that yeah, like. Segunda somehow is able to sense this and in doing so intrudes upon Strange's saying, which makes him very angry. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get a lot of, like, a lot of Strange uh, is being frustrated and angry right. in this episode. Um, and the, the repeated, um, he's very, like, uh, I don't know that you can call him modest necessarily, but he's he's at pains to kind of let everyone know that he has no idea what he's doing. You know, like, right. Like over and over again, there's like a bunch of different scenes where he like, people want him to do stuff and he has to like, he, he feels, he voluntarily clarifies. I don't actually know what I just did. They're always amazed by what he does, but he can't like explain it. Um, So, and that's, I guess the frustration is if you interrupt me, I can't repeat it. Like I can't, yeah. ever really un- articulate it well enough to know how I got there. Um, right. And I love that section where he says like, oh, I read this in Ormskirk and they're like, Ormskirk spells don't work for anyone. Not even Ormskirk. Like <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> these theoretical magicians who have, again, all the theory and, and barely anybody can actually put them into practice. Mm-hmm. But it kind of implies that Ormskirk must have been, onto something if just because he couldn't perform his own spells doesn't mean that which i guess is maybe that's like segundus like yeah he's been a theoretical magician but just because he has difficulty practicing it doesn't mean that he doesn't have genuine understanding of right these principles or that he's completely without magic um um yeah, and so the other um, sort of uh, quote there is um, when he meant, like, when they mentioned that Sugundus is looking to uh, create a school of magic, and uh, he goes, oh, you know, could do with a school of magic. I, I cannot make it do as I wish, you see. It is a continuous leak, an accident. Um, so that there's something that, there, like, there's certainly ability there, and, and um, you know, the ability to sort of tap into the magic, it, you know, a continuous leak of, of what? Like, that's the question. Like, there's just, like, magic leaking through and, like, maybe he can tap into it. Like, you would tap into a, you know, maple tree to get sap. But, like, unlike a, a maple tree tap, he doesn't quite know how to, like, control it and, and sort of bring it out. It's just sort of like, oh, you, you get it or you don't. And when it works, it works. And when it doesn't, it doesn't. You know. Which is slightly ominous that the episode then ends with sending him off to the war. Like, you know, sure. maybe he's a little more educated or, or controlled by then, but you still, by the end, even have a sense that he only barely understands what his powers are and how to control and harness them. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, going back to the, you know, sand horses, like, he you know, does it, but he didn't walk out there like, like Norrell, you know, goes out to put his defensive uh, defenses, you know, up and 
he knows what he's going to do. He kind of, like, has memorized the spell. And he goes out and he, like, you can see him, like, sort of talking it. And then, like, the sort of display of the hands is, like, an afterthought. Just, like, for the crowd kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. that's not part of, you know, Strange isn't doing anything for the crowd per se. It's just, he like, he, he's so frustrated. And all he can think about is this stupid horse sand. And so what's the most natural thing? I'm just going to make some horses out of sand. Like, right. like, he's just so frustrated by it. Like, that's the thing that he thinks to do. And it's like, all right, I don't know how I did it or what. I'm just going to stick my hands in the sand and make some freaking horses. And right. it's going right. to write the ship. So there's definitely like an instinctive, an in, yeah. the the um, contrast or the foil between the two is 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 Norrell's very, you know, learned approach of you know researching and and you know uh, figuring out precisely what he's going to do and then he does it and Strange just kind of like breezing right. in and being like, all right, I'm just going to try some stuff and right. maybe something will work. Um, and and the, which... the tragedy of the personalities is that Norrell, who makes a gesture towards the audience, like you said, like, he's like, I got to give him something. So I'll give it this little hand wave. And like, it's just so kind of lame. And whereas like yeah. Strange, who, like you said, is reacting purely from instinct and kind of couldn't care less about what people think. Of course, everybody loves him. And, you know, like he's so effortless and makes it look so impressive and easy and instinctual that he gets the acclaim and the applause and the popularity. Whereas Norrell, who actually is the one like cultivating, like what's my image? Um, Everybody is pretty tired of him by the end of the episode. Like the the episode starts with him, like getting applause from the cabinet. Like he's in a good position and has a good reputation, but like in the space of this one episode, He's kind of old news, and um, sure. and strange is like the hot new thing. Well, and he like he disappears, and and so like the first time he disappears, they can't find him. It's presumably because he's out putting up defenses and stuff, which is what he's supposed to be doing. But right. it's like no one knows where he is, so let's find Strange, who can. Um, I, and we don't actually see what Strange does, like in in Walter Pole's right yeah. room upstairs or whatever. Um. But, uh, we see, um, you know, we see Strange, uh, or sorry, we see, um, Norrell, the second time he sort of disappears, it's like he has a headache. But then, like, he comes out and watches Strange Mm -hmm. on the beach. So it's like, how bad was that headache? Exactly. Like, (laughs) he, uh. Yeah. He had a bad enough headache, you know, to email his boss and tell him he's not coming into work today. Right. But, right. but, but not he, so bad to skip the, the, the horse like, beach thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, but then he's like, well, what's going on? So, I, yeah, I don't know. He, um, yeah, it's, it's that, it brings up that question of like, it, was he really not feeling well? Or does he just, did he not know what to do? Is this, is, is that a similar situation? I didn't actually think of this before, but is that a similar situation with, not wanting to raise, you know, the various mm. army, you know, English army captains or whatever that they were talking about before, where it's like, well, I don't want to have to deal with, with that. So I'm going to make some excuse. And then, yeah, you know, like this is, you know, this is that thing of like, I don't, I don't want to do that type of magic. Or I don't know 
I haven't studied that type of magic yet, so I need to like mm-hmm. research in books and figure that out. Um, yeah, and I feel like certainly in like the way he uses it, headache does become like euphemism for um seventeen you know, or eighteenth century British gentlemen saying, please leave. Like, right. <laughs> like, get out. The master you know? is indisposed. Like, I'm, I'm too yeah. polite to say it otherwise. So I, I have a headache, you know. Oh, okay. Um, like, terribly sorry. But that's just, like, code for I, I'd like to be alone. And uh, you can you can leave the office now. Um, you, you get the other thing, too, that, like... So, Strange, obviously, we saw him... Um, in the last episode, like his sort of like bachelor pursuits, right. Of like, well, I'm not, I'm drinking less than I did last week. And yeah. I, you know, I'm not, you know, going out as much and, you know, playing cards as much and all of that. Um, like, this is kind of like, like, okay, he's not a bachelor anymore, but there's still that like restlessness maybe to the mm-hmm. bachelor life of like, I mean, now he is married and doing, you know, he has his profession sorted. Um, and we get the reference even from Arabella of like, oh, wow, you didn't even notice the new maid. Like, right. you really you really have changed. But I, I wonder how true that is. Like, has he really changed? Like, it is part of that frustration, like some of the, you know, so, that's just his personality, bachelor or not, that he mm-hmm. just like, he's looking for the new thing, wants to discover like, you know, the yeah. the next way to implement his magic and and that kind of stuff um yeah he's very focused on what he's learning but it's that's kind of where his energy and creative passion is um it's not again it's not that he's matured above those impulses it's (laughs) you know um or that he even realized one way or the other about whether like he didn't kind of ogle the maid not because he felt like that wouldn't be pro- appropriate, but because he literally did not realize there was he didn't one. Know, yeah, he was just <laughs> focused on some, yeah. something else. Yeah. Um, which, so, like, then when he does meet Norrell, like, you get that, um, you know, they're they're sort of in the library there, and, and you know, he's talking to Drawlight and Lascelles, who are kind of like, you know, I don't know, just sort of like, interviewing or whatever you know strange and he's just kind of like that got that weird like grin on his face or whatever like okay like i'm putting up with you guys and then like norrell you know prompts him to do magic and and he does his thing and and obviously norrell is very impressed and it goes from like zero to a hundred like that escalated quickly from like i'm skeptical about you calling yourself a magician to here's a 10-year study plan (laughs) uh you know like which isn't gonna get us very far yeah um, which is not the surface. like like we understand why norrell likes that we've already like norrell would be happy to spend the next 10 years sitting at a library reading about how to do and i mean you know he's probably practicing as well you know the magic um that he's reading about but um that's not strange like strange wants to go out and do mm-hmm. new things and rediscover old things and like get his hands dirty and all of that like his idea of being a magician's apprentice isn't uh you know sitting in a library for the next 10 years and reading books not that like books aren't important and yeah. can't help you but uh they're 
for him, the books are less like treasures to be hoarded and more, you know, means to an end. Right. Um, right. To figure out new ways to do new things. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I really enjoy, um, for as much as like they are opposites and the ways that you're saying, um, I really enjoy Norrell's delight in Strange. Like when he kind of meets yeah. him and the the magic that he performs and kind of seeing somebody with ability and talent, you know, equal to his own. I, I again, like, you know, we're finding little half glimmers of uh, morality within Norrell. I like that his first impulse, I mean, it turns into one of, a bit of jealousy and a bit of possessiveness. I think mostly like encouraged by draw light and Lascelles, but, um, sure. but his first honest impulse is like, I found a best friend. Like, this is the greatest thing. Right. Um, this is the most amazing magic I've ever seen. Like, it's not a protective. Here's somebody who's going to threaten my position. It's like, no, here's somebody who understands who, um, you know, is is going to want to sit and study with me for 10 years, clearly, because look what we can learn yeah. from each other and we have so much we can do together. And it's a it's very, that, like, generous first kind of reaction. It's that um, that C.S. Lewis quote, right, about friendship, you know, when one person says, oh, you right, too, right, you know, right. I thought I was the only one. Right. Um, very much that, especially I think when Strange describes um, magic as like, hearing the music in the back of your head right. and, and all of that. And, and like, you can see that look on Norrell's face. Like that's the perfect way to describe it. Like he had almost never thought of what, well, I mean, it, it seems like he had never thought of describing it that way, but then you hear that description and you're like, yes, yes, that's a, it exactly. And, mm -hmm. and you just know that the other person gets it. Not only that the other person gets it, but that they get it in the same way that you get it, mm -hmm. which isn't, like even among like people who like understand things like you're you're not you know maybe I might explain something to you the way I understand it but then it might not be clear that you understand it in exactly the same way but then there's those times where it's like you have that one friend maybe or that one instance where it's like oh yes I've the way you're describing it is exactly the way that I've been thinking about it even if it's like using different words or something right right, right. it it just perfectly sums up how you've been thinking about it and so um yeah anyway yeah uh, so it's a it's a cute little moment um yeah you know and later they kind of joke about i think norrell's laughing but it is that thing of like you're so <laughs> used to him being so kind of grumpy and introverted and all these things and then to have him like smile when you know when strange like puts the thing in the mirror um yeah. and and just sort of his joy at having a partner um is pretty fun yeah um so yeah uh we don't have talked a lot about them but i did want to so you have, I mean, we kind of mentioned like draw light in the cells and, and kind of the ways in which maybe they're sort of guiding or manipulating some of the action. And like, I'm not entirely sure if I, if I understand, like, like there's clear, I mean, it's clearly very selfish or, or at least self 
centered mm. in the way that they're doing this. But is it, do you think their sort of manipulations are, and maybe there's a different answer for draw light than for the cells. Maybe they're not even, you know, maybe they don't even have the same intention, but like there seems to be both components of just sort of like, let's have fun with this and like kind mm -hmm. of like the entertainment value of like manipulating someone else. But then there's also the like, you know, oh, if I can, you know, if, if Norrell becomes famous and like I'm the one who introduced Norrell to the mm -hmm. world, then that makes me famous too, right? It's the, right, right. you know, the manager of the pop star who, you know, like makes the money and makes the decisions and all of that kind of stuff and yeah, sort of yeah. controls access and um, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, so, I, I completely agree that both are at work. I, I, I think um, if I were to say one or the other, I, I think both of them have components of both of those motivations, but um, I would kind of speculate that Drawlight seems a little more invested in the... Um, the kind of reflected status. Like he's the one at the parties saying, I'm your John the Baptist. Uh, and, and, and sure you're here, but let me introduce you. Like, mm -hmm. you know, he wants the kind of attention, which I think goes with the kind of flamboyance of, you know, right. He's a society man. Theatrical. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, whereas like LaSalle's to me, I wouldn't say he'd like, it's not that he doesn't care about the influence and the status and all that, but he seems like more cold blooded in the kind of like, is it more just about the fun of, of the well, manipulation? Um, yeah, maybe. Um, and I guess I was thinking of it more as like, he's more the artist of mm -hmm. like, like he's doing it for this sort of performance value rather mm -hmm. than the, you know, he like, he may or may not care what society thinks, but it's more like there, you know, he can manipulate Norrell as a character in one of his plays kind of thing. Right, right. Um, rather than, you know, the wanting to impress, you know, whatever right. lord or lords. or Right, right. It's more the experience of it is more important than whatever yeah, almost, the result. Almost like trying. a performance, yeah. uh, you know, piece or something yeah, like, yeah. you know. And I think, um, like more than anybody else they seem to be like living in this sort of jane austen world where like they don't have <laughs> jobs or like sure any occupation maybe this is what arabella was worried about and it's like this is their right. their fun in this life this is what strange is, could have been right like they like literally have nothing better to do than to go to parties and hang around in meetings that like the, why are they even there? Like, there's no reason for them to be around other than that they're his friends and they've attached himself the, themselves to Norrell and his whole, you know, yeah. interests. And um, and now it's just accepted that they hang out in the drawing room and contribute when, like, why? They're not politicians. They're not magicians. Who cares what they have to say? But, like, this is their occupation, is this social kind of jockeying for position. Um, yeah, the, so <laughs> I, 
I mean, you mentioned Jane Austen, right? So, I mean, it, it immediately comes to mind. This is what happens when single men with in possession of good fortune don't have a wife. Sure. Right? Like, right, right. <laughs> um, you know, strange escape that he got a wife and, right, and it's right. like now he's got his occupation and stuff. In right. order to get the wife, he had to get the occupation. And, right. and now things are working out to some degree for him. But right, right. And Laurel is... <laughs> at least has his profession. Like he's, he's sure. you know, well, a hard worker, if nothing else. So that, you know, I mean, he's manipulated he, by he's them. He's the but... exception that sort of proves, like he's the lifelong bachelor who, right. you know, sort of, uh, you know, maybe proves the rule, but right, and um, is sort of married to his work and his sure. sort of pursuit of that, yeah. But like, yeah, they're sort of professional socialites, you know. Like, it, this sure. is sort of their their job is, you know, these sorts of parlor games, and you know, um, I mean, there's a quick mention of the fact that like Lascelles edits the periodical because, of course, he does. Right. Um, but like, it's not like he does that for the money. Like he does that to stay connected and to have influence on what the societal opinion of magic is. Right. Um, it's not because he needs a job. Yeah. Yeah, no, you right. It's, it's just some idle person. Well, maybe it's not idle, but it's, it's not a net, it, like he's not doing it to keep the lights on or, right. you know, right. feed himself or anything. Um, yeah, no, I mean, these are clearly the, the idle rich that, you know, just kind of don't have anything better to do. And, and as long as Norrell sort of keeps them in front, you know, keeps them in supply of, you know, stories to tell at parties and that kind of thing. So, um, I, we've talked a lot about Strange and Norrell, which is, which is fine. I think we can talk about the fairy and Lady Pole and Stephen somewhat quickly. Yes. <laughs> but um, just to sort of like um, finish out here too. So you like the the foils to them uh, are of course Segundus and Honeyfoot, which I mean, we've already talked about Segundus has some kind of ability um, and Honeyfoot is certainly much more earnest than either Trollite or Lascelles. Like, mm -hmm. so um yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know that I have a ton to say about them, but just uh, like, there's definitely where, where you have, like, these are like the seconds in the fight, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have like Strange and Norrell being set up, um, having some similarities, but also, you know, a number of differences, um, I think that's where you have these, these like two supporting actors, you know, the sort of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, uh, you know, for each of them. Um, right kind of often the sidelines supporting um, their players in some way. And, and where I didn't actually think of this, but where you have draw light and the cells sort of doing the, Oh, we'll introduce you around to all the people and, you know, introduce you to society and whatever. Um, it's Segundus and Honeyfoot who actually offer to introduce uh, strange to North yeah, that's because of his ability. Mm -hmm. But like, it's not, it's not a social thing. It's not, you know, whatever it's, it's a, we, we also want to see English magic succeed and you can clearly do things that nobody else can do. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll introduce you to the right person who can teach right. you that not right. we'll introduce you because it makes us look good right. and, you know, right. brings us attention. And right. Yeah. Right. And in the interest of, 
mentorship and, you know, Strange's sort of education and, and furthering his magical ability, not just, well, here's the people that you need to know and sort of just to improve his reputation. So, yeah, no, I, if I ever noticed the, the parallel, I've kind of forgotten to think of them that way. So I, I'm glad that you brought that up because they're a good sort of foil for Jawlight and LaSalle's. I, I don't want to move on from the Stranges, though, before we talk a little bit, at least, about Arabella. Yeah. Um, we do get the one moment, um, and we can talk about, like, Mr. Fairy in the relation to Poland and stuff. So we get the one moment there where he um, brings Stephen into mm-hmm. uh, Strange's office, which is funny because he's like, oh, you no, know, don't worry, they can't see it. But then Strange totally is like, oh, wait, is somebody there? Like, yeah. like he does maybe not see them, but detects them, uh, which that wasn't expected clearly. Um, but we get the attention of, you know, Mr. Fairy on right. uh, Arabella Strange. So there's, there's that. Um, right. Oh yeah. He's very um, interested in attractive people and, sure. and distractible, you know, like he's happy to have as many um, beautiful mistresses and yeah. sort of concubines as he can collect. Um, yeah. So yeah, something new, some new shiny thing has sort of caught his eye. Um, but then also sort of her conversation with Lady Pole, which we can talk about with Lady Pole next, but um, like her sort of assertiveness and, you know, maybe mm-hmm. for the time period, not ladylike <laughs> at times, like, um, like telling Jonathan, like, oh, you know, I'm not three years old. Like, I yeah. can, you know, speak up for myself and tell people what I like or don't like or want or don't want. Um, yeah. But then also at the auction, like, um, also the very practicality. So, I mean, we talked about the picnic. I mean, so, of course, like, Jonathan's not going to remember to bring food, but she does. And she brings, you know, whatever. Um, even some to share and gets maybe a little annoyed that, strange is eating all of the eggs um but then also like she's the one looking in the paper and saying like oh there's an estate sale with lots of books and you like books and you want books and you need magic books so maybe we should uh do that and oh and we'll swing by and say hi to your aunt while you know we're on the way or whatever yeah um and yeah i i like that about her and and the way the story's written that like i think it could have been I could see it being like an easy thing to have her be, oh, she's the one who wants him to have an occupation. And then when he gets one, she's disproving of what it is like, like, well, I didn't mean magic, you know, and like, but no, like, I like that they have her be invested and supportive, like, and she's interested in like, oh, okay, you need books. So she gets him the the only book she can find. And, um, and then is always has an eye open for where can we get more and you're going to need this if you're really going to make a go at this as a right. profession and all those sorts of things. So I think like that's a, a more unexpected, like I would have expected the kind of nagging. Right. A more even like if the wish kind right, of. Like even if they yeah. didn't mean it to be that way, because I could see it being like, well, they want her to be very kind of moral. And so she's maybe picking up on, oh, this is dangerous and maybe you shouldn't get involved in that. You know, but I kind of like that they have her be like totally into 
at least up mm-hmm. until this point, completely into the whole magic thing. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and she's like, like, I don't know magic. Just like, you know, I mean, you know, I could see like other, uh, you know, maybe there's couples out there. Well, so like, I mean, I, of course, I'll go to Robert Heinlein, right? So like, like he and his wife, like, you know, he would write something and the first thing he would do was hand it to his wife and she would read it and yeah. edit it and comment on it. And he would change it based on her feedback. And like, they totally considered, you know, like he's obviously the one who is well known and, you know, writing the stuff, or whatever, but they considered it a business and she, you know, did like the business correspondence and like, you know, I mean, he typed letters and stuff on of his own, of course, but like, like it was very much, you know, a partnership in kind of their writing yeah. business and they were sort of equal partners in that way. And, and it's the same kind of thing. Like she's like, Arabella, I, I don't do magic, but you know, here are the things that I can do and, and where, you know, it, you might have found your profession and my profession. It, like, I don't want to reduce it to just like my profession is helping you. Like, cause I don't think that's quite what it is. It's we're both sort of invested in this mm-hmm. magic thing and, I can't do the magic, but I can do these other things, you know, to, right. you know, help out and that kind of right. thing. Right. It's so. been become like their little family business. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, and it's kind of cool to see her just like, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go to this auction and like been on right. some books and like, you know, that's awesome. I mean, and she would have got them if Norrell wasn't like crazy rich and determined to have them. Sure. Right. Um, and like, and he's sort of startled into, I think, making a bigger bid than he intended by the presence of the fairy and everything. Um, but yeah, like it's kind of cool to see her out there doing what she can. Like, I don't even necessarily get the sense that Strange knows about this book sale. Like, or she told him and it went. She did she, tell him. It but went kind of in one ear and out the other. But yeah. she's just like, okay, I'm going to go like get them myself like it's not like she needs him or waits for him or you know needs him to even really be involved that's that's her job and she's gonna go do it um yeah so anyway uh so should we talk about we should the fairy since we brought him up (laughs) We should talk about the fairy and Lady Pole and Stephen at least yeah. a little bit. At least I mean, they months. are sort of a, a secondary thread in yeah. the narrative. Yeah. So maybe we can, um, yeah, definitely uh, shorten it a little bit. Um, yeah, and we'll get more with them too, so. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, so we know the deal that um, Norrell made with the fairy to bring Lady Pole back. Obviously taking a toll on her, um, you know, and we sort of see more and more why, like, as it goes on. But long story short, she's being, her, her sleep is being co-opted so she can attend fairy balls every night. Um, and uh, when Norrell sort of realizes something is going on but doesn't quite know um, and, and summons the fairy, pisses him off so he invites steven too which i don't maybe maybe it explains it more in the book and obviously like we know like there's more to steven than initially meets the eye so Mm -hmm. like 
there's other reasons that we'll get to maybe later, but like, it's at least not clear now why he sort of chooses Steven. Um, sure. You know, he, I mean, other than like, I mean, there's the, what feels like a very, you know, uh, what's the word? I can't think of it. Like, uh, uh, just an excuse to like, call him be to like help him dress but like he's a fairy he could just sort of like snap his fingers and be dressed right. for the ball so like right um but then like all the very complimentary things mm-hmm. of you know telling him that he's you know more than just a servant and you know like the the servant will be a king and like this kind of stuff um and then you know saying oh you know well now uh, like because you did such a good job i'll invite you as a guest and Stephen accepts which is unfortunate because you yeah. shouldn't accept things from right. a fairy. Right, there is that um, moment of, um, of of invitation. You know, like, do do you accept yeah. his proposal? Thank you, sir. And it's like, no, yeah, don't take uh, the fairy bargain. Yeah, um, so, like you have to invite him in. You have to summon him. You have to accept his invitations. He can't just force himself on you. Um, um, I just get the sense of like, and again, like maybe we'll get more into details that I've forgotten or explanations or whatever, but, um, like, just like Lady Pole and Arabella, like, is just, it's something about Stephen just attractive to the gentleman. Like, just these are, you know, noble, attractive young people who seem like they would fit well in dancing in his balls. And that's kind of almost as simple as that. Like, just what people is he sort of viscerally drawn to? Um, sure. And he doesn't and care that Stephen is a servant or really understand the concept. He he looks at Stephen and says, clearly, you must be a king where you are. You're, you know, the most dignified person, you know, that he's ever met. So yeah. he's this certainly not based on any power that they have. Um, so it's something either physically or innate in their sort of character, I think, that he's responding to. Yeah. And and there is that idea of, I mean, I think going back in, in fairy tales and stories quite a bit of like just that, the sort of like collection aspect that like the fairy king has of like, he's just sort of like making his, um, you know, menagerie or whatever. Like mm-hmm. I'm thinking in particular um for reasons that might be obvious to you of like sir orfeo where you Mm. have like this whole scene of like the different people um whom the fairy king sort of whisked away at their moment of death and um preserved or you know whatever in his sort of garden or display um and I, i like i feel like you that same thing here where it's like some of these people you're not quite like are they dead or are they just is it just they look different or you know is it is that like the fairy look um or right, are these right. just like other, are these other people other that souls or are these other fairies or it's not quite clear. yeah it's not entirely clear for a lot of them so um yeah no i i mean i agree like that probably is the most we can sort of think right now because we don't really get a clear answer from mr fairy yet but um just that yeah like there's something about steven that's attractive um and 
until this starts happening and he's becoming tired, right? He even wakes up and is like, man, it feels like, I feel like a man who's been dancing all night. Well, that's because you have, Stephen. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, of course he can't say that. Like, even if he realizes it, he can't actually say it, mm-hmm. it seems like. Um, right. Which I guess oh. is another question. Like, do we, do we actually, I, I know this, I know it's clearer in the book, like mm-hmm. with Lady Pole's sort of outbursts and weird stories. Like we know in the book that it's her attempts to explain what is going on. And so we know that she remembers. I'm not sure if I'm clear mm. here if she actually does or not. Like we don't have that same sort of internal insight sure. in, in the film. I mean, I, I think if we want, we can say, okay, well, it probably is because, you know, yeah. we're following what the book does here but like i don't think it's obvious that she necessarily remembers at least i mean the only the only line i can think of is her saying to arabella like i'm letting you know that i've tried to explain to people and i Mm. haven't been successful which kind of suggests to me that she's lucid like she is trying to say something that she's unable to say and and knows what she wants to say but can't um so i kind of take that to mean that it's the same as in the book that like she does remember she's just under this spell that yeah stops her from saying it but like yeah we don't get the we don't it's probably not quite as explicit as in the as in the novel and so you would have to assume that for Steven, it's the same way. So when he says, I feel like a man who's been dancing all night, like, is that the closest that he can actually get? Like, he can't say that he's been dancing at a ball all night, but he right. can say he feels like right. he has. Right. Um, or that's even, like, when it was only, like, the first night, so he doesn't remember it well enough to realize what sure. he's saying. Like, I, maybe it's, like, the, the the clearer they get in their memories, the more they are unable to express you know like clearly what what has been happening yeah um and yeah and, yeah, and even when you possible. say like they're unable to talk about what happened like you know given the fact that it's you know um a, a woman and a black servant it like there's like a metaphor sure. there of like yeah they're physically unable to but like also they're unable for like reasons of you know propriety and everything like sure. there's a level of honesty that they're not sort of allowed to express socially. Um, and then there's like this physical spell as the kind of manifestation of that. Um, so yeah, so we get all these kind of fun, crazy stories from her. Um, we don't mm-hmm. have to go through them all or anything, but that's sort of how she does it. And I guess at this point, we don't really know what Arabella thinks about it all. Like, mm. but she seems to, at least she's giving the sort of impression that she's trying to help in some mm-hmm. way. Um, right. And the bit that she does seem to take seriously is, is that it, there's a warning in there about Norrell. Like, even sure. if she thinks that Lady Pole is mad, Still, the underlying message is something Norrell did caused whatever it is that's happening with her. And 
there's and so that's her kind of message to strange is maybe we should be a little careful with this guy um yeah you know just because lady pole is mad well like how did she get that way you know so that doesn't necessarily disprove that Norrell might be dangerous mm -hmm. right so she's like the first one to take seriously you know the message that Lady Paul's trying to give. Um, and then I just wanted to bring up a few, well, sorry, I, anything else about Lady Paul and maybe the fairy or Stephen? Um, I don't think so. No, I think we'll get some more with them later. So okay. I think we're good. Um, so, we get a couple of references to the Raven King. I already mentioned sort of Miss um, Absalon's house, mm. uh, where they for where um, Segundus and uh, Honeywell first meet Strange, um, or the Stranges, uh, being built of stones from the Raven King's castle. Um, but we get a little more substantial with, um, you know, so. Uh, apparently Arabella, who, who like, I mean, I hadn't thought of this before, but of course she's the book procurer, right? Like she's the one who gives him the mm. Raven King book as well, mm. like as a sort of gift. So, um, where Strange is consistently frustrated in his attempts to find books, Arabella seems at least somewhat successful, mm -hmm. um, at least one time, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, more than he is, uh, at getting a a book of magic rather than a book about magic um, for right. him. Uh, now there doesn't, it doesn't seem to have a whole lot of stuff in it, but it is a book and strange yeah. does seem to learn some things from it. Um, yeah. And more it's, important. It's, and it's the, the, the child's history of the Raven King. Right. So it's like, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where, you know, that book is, has more in it than what people would admit. But like, it's very easy to dismiss because like, well, the only, the only real book of magic we could get was like this, you know, child's history. Like, you know, it's not serious, you know, theoretical, magical scholarship. Um, but like, yeah, there's probably more packed into that child's volume than meets the eye. Sure. Um, but then also, so we get the conversation between um, Strange and Nora, like, when Strange is like, okay, so when do we learn, like, fairy magic and, you know, stuff <laughs> like that? And then he's like, well, what about the Raven King? He says, uh, does not all English magic come from the Raven King, who was stolen away to fairy court and raised and learnt magic? And um, Nora gets very upset, you know, oh, the Raven King rode out of these lands 300 years ago, abandoning us and abandoning us magic. If we cannot make his... Uh, name and the name of his fairy servants utterly forgotten, then we should at least broadcast our hatred of him. I'm paraphrasing slightly. Um, and let it be known everywhere our abhorrence of his corrupt nature and his evil deeds. Like, this is like probably the strongest opinion Norrell takes on any subject whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. Um, very against the Raven King and all he presumably stands for. Uh, right. So, so much for his kind of pretense of well it's just not that important you know like he cares enough it's important enough to be this angry about so there's something is touching on a nerve 
Um, yeah. You know, it can't just be that fairies aren't really quite what we think they are. And the Raven King really was sort of not ultimately that important. And, you know, or, or who knows if those stories are true anyway, and all that kind of attitude. Um, that doesn't really seem to be what he believes. You know, it's more this feeling of abandonment. Um, yeah. And yeah. Uh, his kind of rebellion against this absent father of English magic. <laughs> like, Well, with the implication, because um, that's what Segundus and Honeywell say about Strange's magic is, you know, nothing like this has been done in over 300 years. And so I think putting the two together, there's an implication there of, like, the Raven King not only left, but, like, took all of magic. Yeah, it's not that he abandoned English magic. He he abandoned England. He right. he abandoned England with the magic. Did yeah. I say that right? Like he, like, he took magic from England is kind of the implication. And now Morrill's, not Morrill, Norrell is trying, is struggling trying to bring it back. Mm. And, um... I, like, yeah, it's that thing of, like, fine, if you left and took your ball, like, I'm going to get a new ball and, you know, play yeah. harder with my ball than you right. have with yours. Right, I, and we didn't like that. need you, Dad, the whole time. Right. Like, better right. off without you. Yeah. Um. Right. So, yeah. So, right. I just wanted to sort of bring that up. Like, we get these few references. We don't know who or what the Raven King is at this point, but... Mm -hmm. um. Right, like, and I guess maybe just to mention, not to go through them in detail, but um, in the previous episode, I don't think we talked much about the prophecies that we started to get, like, um, you know, Vinculus's things seem to all have to be circling around the Raven King in some way. Um, yeah. So it's, it's something that's sort of in the air. Um, you know, and... <laughs> And is it in this scene or a different one where Norrell says, what have I ever done that needed the help of a fairy? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's like the same conversation, yeah. Yeah, and straight, I don't know. <laughs> um, kind of correctly guessing that I don't know that you haven't ever done anything without the help of a fairy. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, Norrell's being quite... in. in He's simultaneously being more honest than he's ever been, but also disingenuous about his own actual actions. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure we brought up Raven King. Um, yeah. But we should probably move on. Move on to... <coughs> excuse me. Move on to Angel. All right, so moving on to Angel. Uh, episode 10, Soul Purpose. Um... I think you had a few production notes for this one. Yeah, just a couple of things. I mean, so it might seem kind of weird, but uh, that this late in sort of the series, we're getting um, both a new director and a new writer uh, for an episode. Um, I don't know that this happens um, again. And, and also that um, for, for both of these people, it's, the only episode that each one writes and directs, uh, you know, in the entire series. So kind of a interesting thought, especially considering how 
different this episode is maybe from uh, a number of the others. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, just wanted to mention. So, first of all, the writer, uh, Brent Fletcher, uh, who we discovered uh, also wrote for Lost, um, among some other things. He, he's uh, currently, or at least recently, wrote for um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as well. So, kind of has stayed maybe in the Whedon circle of influence, if um, I don't know. I, I don't know if we still consider Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. a Whedon production at this point. I mean, um, or at least a Joss Whedon production. Right. I know his brother is involved with it um, and stuff, but Joss sort of Probably like... depends on how much you like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Yeah, you know. well, and I, like I always wonder, like, I know he's like sort of credited with like creator and, you know, executive producer status. But like, how much involvement does that actually mean? Right. Um, right. And and so, like, what creative uh, aspect yeah. can we give to him? Anyway, all that to say that Grant uh, Fletcher wrote this episode. It's the only episode he writes of Angel. Um, he didn't write on Buffy or anything either. Um, he did apparently do like um, whatever, like script coordination or script editing and that kind of stuff. So it's not. It's not the only episode of Angel that he worked on, but the only one he's credited as writing. Mm-hmm. Um, he also worked on things like Friday Night Lights. Um, we mentioned he wrote um, an episode in the first season of Lost um, after, like a, a year after this episode of Angel. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, so has gone on to do some other things as well. Um, and then there's the director. So we get... Uh, we had um, the directorial debut uh, already of, uh, you know, Sam, uh, Samwise Gamgee, uh, <laughs> Sean Astin. Right. Uh, now we get the directorial debut of David Boreanaz. Um, so, you know, this late into the Buffyverse, uh, we finally get him directing an episode. And we can talk about maybe some of the decisions that he made as director as we go through um, but just wanted to call that out. And um, I don't think he's credited with directing much after this either, although um, I could be wrong about that. Um, but anyway, yeah, I just thought it was worth uh, mentioning those things. Um, and again, we can talk about some of the ways that it's different and maybe some of the uh, aspects that he might bring to a directorship, uh, mm-hmm. especially in a episode that's really i've got a lot of angel focus on it Mm -hmm. um you know it's sort of an angel and spike episode um i don't know if it's quite evenly split but there's certainly a lot of you know angel stuff and it's like angel internal stuff so maybe some of the ways that he's like acting and thinking about what angel might Mm -hmm. be feeling and thinking about in these moments is i think kind of interesting Mm -hmm. so um yeah definitely wanted to bring both of those uh people up cool uh yeah good um glad we went over that um i remember you saying before i watched that uh david boreanaz this was his directorial debut so i definitely wanted to make sure we covered yeah. that here so um, um actually just to follow that up he 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 did also direct some episodes of bones um he directed um an episode of The Finder, which was a Bones spinoff. I don't know that it lasted very long. I don't even know how many episodes there was of that. 
um, and then I've ever he, heard of that show. <laughs> it it was not successful. Um, like it, it may have only had one episode, actually, okay. for all I know. Um, and then uh, he's direct, directed one episode of his his new show uh, that he's on currently, the uh, SEAL Team. Um, so all shows that he's been directly involved with. Um, but yeah, anyway, just to say that, like he he has directed some other episodes since this one, but not a ton. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Um, so I kind of want to start with the theme, I guess, of, and, and I guess we can kind of jump forward to some of the conversations um, that the characters have about these gray areas. Um, I guess in particular, like the, I, I mean, we're going to get into the specific storylines in the episodes, but I guess I want to talk about like those conversations that they have about these moral ambiguities. Um, and I feel like it's become custom this season to kind of start each episode with like, let's take the temperature of the room at, at Wolfram and Hart. Like, mm-hmm. how's everyone feeling? Like, that's a lot of what the focus is on is, um, and not in a bad way. Like, I think this is an interesting development of you know where the characters have gone and the fact that like uh it takes a lot of uh processing you know I I think Mm. as working people we know this like you spend a lot of time at work and you do invest a lot of thought and attention and everything into am I at the right place am I doing a good job both performance wise and is the job I'm doing worth doing like you know your job satisfaction or your feeling of being sort of a force for good in the world whatever it is um and it's so it kind of makes sense that that's what the characters are kind of grappling with um and it's a things have changed but it's a very gradual evolution like from episode to episode there's sort of these little incremental changes of shifts of attitude and everything um so like here we get this sort of very casual mention of uh wesley like well once again we find ourselves you know it's when they're talking about the warlock right like it's it's this question of whether or not to how to handle this situation Mm -hmm. do we confront him do we assassinate him what do we do we wait for him to you know out himself and then do something or do we be proactive and aggressive like what are we gonna how are we gonna handle this and once again wesley says yes oddly we find ourselves in a bit of a you know gray area and angels don't say it um like he's he's tired of this conversation um every week you know we have a moral dilemma of some kind like this where we like really don't know what the right thing is um and yeah it's always a choice between do we aggressively go after folks in a violent way or do we kind of sit back and but then risk them causing further damage by not doing something more quickly 
um, mm -hmm. and how can we use our resources both effectively and ethically and all those sorts of things. Um, so you just get angels more than anyone else, angels fatigue of the whole thing. Like Wesley and Gunn are becoming somewhat used to this and hardened to it maybe, or just accepting that this is the way things operate. And we can argue about the best way to handle it, but there's no argument that this is the situation we're in and we have to make a decision and none of these mm -hmm. choices are perfect. We have to kind of figure out what the right one is. Um, yeah. So, sorry, can I just yeah, to yeah. say, to say on that too, like, I think, I think there's also a sense in which as much as it's tiresome to Angel that maybe Wesley and Gunn find the sort of moral dilemma questions kind of fun or exhilarating to like mm. think through like what are all the possibilities and like I mean Wesley is like Mr. you know student guy like you could totally see like you know him weighing all the pros and cons of like different ethical you know dilemmas and sort of enjoying mm -hmm. you know in the philosophy student kind of way like what are all the ways that we can think about, you know, whether or not we should, you know, push one person onto the train tracks to save five or whatever, you know what I mean? Like whatever the sort of philosophy 101 questions that might come up in this mm -hmm. sort of environment. And um, Gunn with his sort of legal, you know, knowledge now, it feels like, maybe maybe from a different angle but kind of the same thing where it's like he's like interested in finding like maybe unique legal stratagems to you know figure out how to like resolve issues rather than you know his former self which was to just do the more clear-cut thing that angel prefers of going out and punching things until mm -hmm. you know there's nothing left to punch um yeah so j just wanted to point out that like me like there's an argument there or uh or a way of looking at it where maybe they sort of enjoy mm -hmm. the grayness versus right. angel sure not so not being only as happy about it yeah not so not only are they not kind of beaten down by it but they actually might find it kind of stimulating yeah um yeah, whereas Angel finds this kind of draining on him. Sure. Um, yep. Yeah, so, and then, so, like, you know, we're going to get into the story of the episode, and so I'm kind of jumping ahead a bit, but um, after they go, I guess the one, I, I don't disagree with what you just said, I, and I guess the one wrinkle that gets added in later is, after they've been to talk with Spike um, and they kind of come back and they're explaining to Fred Spike's attitude and his point of view. And, um, you know, they kind of say he thinks we sold out and, you know, Fred says, we didn't sell out. We're changing the system from the inside. And Gunn says, you know, when you say it out loud, it sounds really naive. So there's sure. at least a, even if there is, an instinctual kind of 
response to the moral complexity of their situation that they're kind of excited by, there's at least one, you know, meta level in which Gunn is, you know, and maybe all of them are also kind of looking at themselves from the outside saying, is this really as good as it sounds? Like, you know, Mm. we can think we're being very mature about it, but maybe are we being kind of cynical? Like, should we be looking at this in more kind of good and evil, black and white sort of terms? That's sort of what they believe in is they're on the side of good. They're fighting for good. They shouldn't be compromising in pursuit of that. So is it kind of, you know, ignorant and naive to assume that they can work from within the system and not be sort of, you know, corrupted by it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I probably should have said up front that I, I was more talking about at least in the beginning, because I think you're right. I Mm -hmm. think, I think part of this episode is to prompt the question of, have we been getting too much into the gray area and should it be as simple as, Angel says it is, mm-hmm. or you know, thinks it should be, um, and that. So I, I, I agree with what you're saying. Is that like I think later on in the episode where they're maybe forced to think about it a little more, there's maybe potential room for a different conclusion. Yeah. But at least I think in the beginning, and when we get like, um, you know, them going to Spike's apartment and you get, like, the sort of Crockett and Tubbs, you mm. know, crack. <laughs> um, like, there is that sense of maybe they're enjoying a little bit the actual, like, gray area in which they're sort of maneuvering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, As symbolized by the slightly different colored gray suits that they wear. R- sure. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, and even you, I think, uh, we might as well talk about that now. You said, I think, before we were recording, um, when we were kind of going through our outline, that they're clearly not indistinguishable, but they're similar enough, especially in that shot when kind of Spike opens the door and they're both standing there sort of silently and, you know, intensely yeah. and everything, that you get the sense of, like, I think you said, like, are they just suits for Wolfram and Hart now? Have they kind of lost the individual, or or not lost, but are losing the individual distinctiveness that kind of made them, you know, the the team and the heroes in the first place? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So that's kind of, like you said, that's the question that's prompted by this episode and even if they realize that they are um in potential of being kind of corrupted by the system i don't know that that necessarily means that they will cease to enjoy it you know like it's this weird tension of i could see them kind of you know in in theory wanting things to go back to a more simple straightforward good versus evil world um, but they can't help it if they're, you know, if they're responding naturally to this sort of work environment. Like mm. we've talked about how Gunn seems 
much more fulfilled in what he's doing right. um, than he ever was. So, you know, while part of him might be worried about how the job is changing him, nonetheless, he is changing, you know? So I don't know how much of that he can help. Mm. Um, so, or it might become a situation where he has to kind of choose one or the other. So we'll have to kind of see where that goes. Um, yeah. And, and right. What sort of conflicts might arise? Cause I mean, you can't imagine there not being a, some kind of conflict that would arise in that sort of situation. Yeah. But like, yeah. What, what are the temptations and things that could lead to it? And we've already sort of, so I think we get, well, and maybe I'm moving too far ahead. So stop me if, you mm -hmm. don't want to go there yet, but like, I think we get evidence here of, of Wesley, you know, maybe sort of honing in a little on Angel's territory as mm -hmm. a leader again, like not for the first time, as you know, has happened variously throughout the series, mm -hmm. um, in yeah. different contexts and different with different results, but um, we definitely get some sense of Angel sort of being sidelined and Wesley kind of taking over in some aspects or areas. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. Which could lead to friction and problems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if they're looking for gray areas, then it seems like a tension between choose, you know, help the helpless with Angel investigations or you know, the resources and power that come with Wolfram and Hart, like that would be a difficult compromise and choice they'd have to make. Yeah, um, for sure. So, yeah, we'll have to see if that comes up and for who. Like, is it, does one of them face this decision sooner than the others? Is it the group? You know, we'll kind of, I don't, I don't know yet, but we'll have to see. Hmm. Um, for going through the kind of plot of the episode, um, I wanted to, I mean, I kind of split it into Spike versus Angel, but it's also Lindsay versus Eve. Um, they are working together, as far as we know, and have this plan, and each of them has kind of a different assignment of, you know, what they're supposed to be doing. So that's kind of how we split them up. Um, so we'll start with, Spike and Lindsay um, mm -hmm. and Lindsay coming to him uh, as Doyle, um, you know, using the name of Doyle and yeah, and seeming to know about like his history and his powers and his relationship with the powers that be and all that sort of thing. And, yeah. you know, which of course, Lindsay worked at Wolfram and Hart during that time. So, right. right it's reasonable to think that he had access to files yeah. about Doyle and yeah, you know, knew kind of who he was and all of that. Yeah. And explicitly kind of setting it up as, um, kind of using what he knows about Doyle and, and his relationship with Angel and everything to kind of mimic that for Spike. Um, yep. like there's a plausibility to this scenario because it happened, you know, that like, it, there's a, you know, whether or not Spike understands, he certainly doesn't understand yet, 
the you know what's going on but there's something realistic i think that he can kind of pick up on like it's better than Lindsay just coming up with like a random story that he made up um you know if he can kind of have real scenarios to kind of build on and play off of it gives him some you know a little more credibility in in the scenario that he's created Mm -hmm. um and it's very rude and very disrespectful of Doyle's, you know, like there's something like, you know, a, a violation of Doyle's memory here. Um, yeah. Like, oh, for sure. you know, to have him kind of assume that name and that, you know, his ability and his backstory and everything um, just feels wrong. Um, so, yeah. And I guess, and I'll be honest, I had actually forgotten that Lindsay does that. So, mm-hmm. like, even watching it, you know, the first time for this, you know, discussion, like, I was like, oh, yeah, ouch. <laughs> like, yeah. that's that's yeah. harsh. Yeah, and it's like, it's been a while since we thought about Doyle or heard, mm-hmm. you know, him mentioned even. Um, maybe once or twice, you know, a couple times throughout the series since, you know, the end of his storyline, but... Not very often, no. Not much. So um, it is kind of like a bit bit shocking when he comes in and, you know, calls himself Doyle and starts talking about his painful visions and everything. And I I don't know if it's the same for you, but then it's, then there's me like going through my mind like, oh, okay, so yeah. So like, we know Spike was an angel you know, in guest appearances in, like, earlier seasons, but, yeah, no, it didn't overlap with Doyle, like, and you're just, right. like, trying to think, like, what does or would Spike, and, it, yeah, I mean, like, Angel's not gonna, like, talk about that period of his mm. work with Spike, like, at that point, they were enemies, because that's, like, before Buffy season four, you know, before Spike goes back to Sunnydale and gets captured and the chip and all that, so, like, they're, like, completely enemies at that point, and, you know... Like, it's not, like, something that he's gonna have a heart-to-heart with Spike about, you know, this, the first, you know, person with the vision, you know, demon or whatever with the visions when he first got there. Yeah. Um, and all Right, that, yeah, so. you kind of forget for a moment that Spike doesn't know this. And so, um, yeah, there's, he's, Lindsay's trusting correctly that there hasn't been communication between them about this, who this person is and, um, and kind of what's the origin of Angel's heroism, which is kind of explicitly what he's recreating here is like, I mean, the whole thing seems to be, um, to like in the conversation with Eve later on, it seems like the, the game is to trick i guess the um the senior partners into uh switching kind of who they're backing for the prophecy um distract them away from angel um and how does he do that he kind of recreates the circumstances of angel's heroism Mm -hmm. um you know which is kind of funny because for all that spike can kind of come across as having like the moral high ground in this episode. Like, Oh, he's the one who hasn't sold out and 
he doesn't want to go work from Wolfram Hart and all that sort of thing. It's also that like, yeah, his heroism might be somewhat genuine, but also like it's it's false in the sense that like it's this whole scenario that is being manipulated by Lindsay. Um, yeah. Like Spike on his own is in the strip bar, you know, kind of hanging out. Like it's not like it's not like he decides not to go back to Buffy and then says, well, I'll go be a vampire slayer on my own. Um, like that's not his first move. It's he's hanging out, having a drink and it's Lindsay coming along and doing his little song and dance about how Angel and co have abandoned the people of LA and, um, and Spike is the only one who can really mm-hmm. make a difference that kind of convinces him to go do something about it. Right. Um, you know, and that's beyond just Spike's kind of general non-people skills, like, you know, lecturing the women that he sla- that he saves about, like, you know, like yeah. victim blaming. They should be taxi. out. Yeah, they should like... be out at night, and you know, it was your fault anyway. Well, um, and and how much of that scenario is set up by? Lindsay in the first place. Sure. Right. Right. So, yeah, I mean, Spike is feeling mighty superior in this episode, but kind of we know from our vantage point that the whole thing is kind of a ruse. Um, in, in this instance, anyway, it's all kind of arranged by Lindsay. Um, yeah, so anything else about... Um, I don't know that there's a ton more to say. Is there anything about like Spike's, you know, job offer and his, I mean, the fact that they go and offer him a job without Angel's involvement is quite significant. Mm -hmm. Um, like you were saying, like Wesley and Gunn kind of going rogue and, um, you know, that's like... This is a major uh, hiring decision that Angel's not privy to. And, and you know, inviting Spike in, which Angel wouldn't really want in the first place. Um, sure. So that's sort of, I think, part of the significance of it. Um, well, and, and there's, so then there's the um, question of, are they hedging their bets? And in a sense, does that make that what they're doing similar to what Lindsay's doing as far as like trying to get, I mean, Lindsay's specifically aiming at the senior partners and trying to get them to back a different person are, I mean, I think, you know, they, they deny, you know, uh, Gunn and, and Wesley deny that maybe they're trying to hedge their bets at all, but there is a sense there in which it's like, yeah, like if Angel's like sick or doesn't work out for some reason, like who knows, maybe Spike is the vampire in the Chantry prophecy. Mm-hmm. Like, right. Right. Yeah. And it kind of starts with them saying, well, it can't hurt to have him around, but yeah, it goes a little bit deeper than that. Right. Um, and, and back to, you know, the gray areas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Yep. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where, I mean, well, there's not too much to say about Spike's final rescue of Angel and we'll get into the Angel stuff. Um, Spike says, don't expect me to jump every time you've got one of these vision thingies, but evidence so far is that he does. So we'll see if that's like a lot of talk. Um, he seems pretty willing to jump. Uh, yeah, he seems so okay with acting the hero bit. Yeah, even, yeah. Even though he complains yeah. every step of the way. Right, right. Doesn't mean he doesn't do it. Right. Um, yeah, and uh, and Lindsay's outfitted him with, you know, his own apartment and everything. So, um, so he's there for the time being, and we'll see kind of where that goes. Um, and in the meantime... Lindsay has Eve. It kind of seems like Lindsay's in charge um, to a certain extent. Um, I'll just throw that out there. Um, it's like, it seems like this is his plan anyway, um, that Eve is sort of executing. So her job is to, you know, put this parasite thing on Angel um, that makes him sick and you know, drains him and gives him delusions and all these sorts of things. Um, and then to just keep the others busy and distracted so that they don't realize that's happening. Um, yeah. Which, so uh, which I guess this is where we kind of bring up like Wesley, you know, who, like you said, yeah, he's looking out for angel protecting angel, but also is not too bothered about making decisions for angel and kind of, you know, making some executive decisions and is maybe a little more comfortable assuming that power than we would hope him to be. Like, you know. Yeah. Uh, so to go back to even Lindsay, though, real quick, mm -hmm. um, like we talked about how Jonathan and Arabella are kind of, you know, equal partners, maybe with different abilities. Are you like, am I hearing right that you you don't think that that's the case with Eve and Lindsay that mm, I maybe don't think there's so. Lindsay is more definitely in charge than I Eve. can't speak for their ability level because I feel like we still don't really know a lot about Eve um or or even but, Lindsay at this point like or he even seems Lindsay, to have some like, kind of right you know, thing with the tattoos. Like, going whatever's like, been going on with him and the tattoos. Like, yeah, so who knows what he's picked up. And and we don't... I don't feel like I know for sure who or what Eve is to say, like, who's more powerful. But just in their interaction, I get a sense that Lindsay, at least, acts as though he's calling the shots. Um, you know, Eve seems more like... Yeah, don't worry about it. They're so distracted. They don't, they're not figuring it out. And he's the one that's kind of worried, like, did you do what you're supposed to? Did you, like, hold up your end of, you know, the plan? What's going to happen? All this sort of thing. Um, which sure. maybe that just means that he worries more. But I got the sense that he's sort of checking up on her um, to make sure that she's done what she was supposed to do. Yeah. Um, so... It could be a nominal partnership where he's really the one in charge. Um, you know, I, I, jury's still out on that, but it seems like he's 
for now kind of in the lead. Um, sure. And how, I guess the other question then that we can keep an eye on, we don't have to answer it here and now, would be like, when did this start? Is this a partner? Like, I mean, one would sort of assume that Eve has been around Wolfram and Hart for a while to have reached the point that she's at. Mm -hmm. So is this like, Lindsay knows this and he like reconnected with an old friend, so to speak, to get what he wants? Or like, have they been planning this since he left, whatever, like three, four, what, how many seasons ago did he leave at this point? Like, yeah, I don't know. A long um, time ago. You know, so is there, is there a sense there that, you know, maybe, maybe this has been a long time coming and I, we may get answers to those or not, but just out of, yeah, you know, just, you know, thinking about like, what would the answer there be of, you know, the question about, um, you know, just sort of how long have they been planning and, and what sort of involvement mm -hmm. um, is going on. And and I guess, like, we don't even really know, like, I mean, we don't know specifically what Lindsay's endgame is, right? Mm -hmm. We know that they want to sort of confuse the partners about who to back. But we haven't quite heard, like, why they want to do that. Right. Have we? No. That, unless I'm not remembering something. No, I don't, think, I don't think so, no. gotten that level of detail. So, and and the question is, like, are uh, Lindsay's, Lindsay and Eve, do they have the same motivations? Right. Even. So, just things to be thinking about. I, I don't know that we mm -hmm. have enough info to like answer those type of questions. But. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I want to come back to them at the end because I feel like the ending is a bit ambiguous and suggestive about their relationship and kind of, are they at cross purposes? So um, uh, maybe we can come back to that um, sure. in a few minutes. Um. Anything else about, like, Eve's manipulations or, um, like we brought up, like, Wesley and the others kind of so, being a bit eager to uh, kind yeah. of assume responsibility while he's out of commission and everything? Wesley's, yeah, sort of assumptions of responsibility. I mean, that the scene with Harmony there is great. Mm -hmm. um, we're, like... Literally everything that could possibly happen, she's supposed to go to Angel about, and you get the I'm not sense. Supposed to talk to accounting. Yeah, Angel's right. Approval. You get the sense that it's not just like that. She's supposed to like go to Angel to check on things, but that like there's specific reasons in right. the past as to why right. she shouldn't be handling things on her own or allowing others to handle things on their own. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Right. So especially after you know, her episode, you know. Um, right, right. Can, After seeing, like, how maybe bad things can go when she makes decisions on her own. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, or, or, like, and it's it's that very, like, parent-child relationship, too, I feel like, of, like, well, I'm supposed to ask my dad if I can go to, like, so-and-so's after school or whatever. Right, right. Like, 
um, you know, that kind of thing. Like, I'm really not supposed to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a funny, yeah. it's a funny dynamic. Um, yeah, I mean, other than noting Wesley's kind of willingness and, and quickness to sort of make those sorts of executive decisions, I'm not sure how much else, um, you know, again, if he can't remember his mistakes, can we hold him responsible for not learning from them? Um, but at the same time, like, it's not like he's never, you know, crossed those boundaries before. So this is an ongoing issue, um, that he struggles to learn from, I think. And, and it's that gray area because it's like there's part of it where you can read it as like he's sort of taking over Angel's job. But then there's also part of it where like, well, no, he's looking out for Angel who's not feeling well. Mm-hmm. Like you don't want to bother the boss unless there's an actual problem, right? Like, Well, I think that the issue is not that what he does is wrong. It's that it plays to his flaws. Like, yeah. it's wrong for him. It's not that but, the decision is objectively, like, nobody else can ever say, I'll translate the runes on this magical artifact. The problem is that this is pulling Which he hands him. off to Fred anyway. Sure. I think, <laughs> yeah, like, the, the decision he makes isn't objectively a bad one. I think what's dangerous is that it's a, it's a specific temptation for him. Um, yeah. Like you know, needing someone to make decisions while Angel is not around plays into typically Wesley, you know, problems and flaws. And that's where it gets a little bit dicey, I think. On the other hand, we know that this entire situation has been uh, crafted by Eve and Lindsay. Mm -hmm. Um, and probably, you know, manufactured that whole concept of, like, we know that Wesley has a problem, mm-hmm. you know, with sort of maybe overreaching his authority. And so we're going to set up a situation in which he does that. Right. It, in order specifically to keep him from going up and seeing Angel in his sort mm-hmm. of uh, parasitic state. Right, right. Um, yeah. so like, like to further murky the water, it's just that idea of like, yeah, like, like you said, can we blame Wesley if he doesn't remember the past, but also like, can we blame him if there's a situation specifically targeted to take advantage of his known weaknesses? Mm -hmm. Then yeah. Like who is to blame there? Is, is he still to blame because he falls prey to his weakness or is the person who sort of sets him up to blame? Right, right. And I mean, the gray area being, well, maybe it's a bit of both. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, um, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was going to move on to Angel's delusional state unless you had more about the whole Eve manipulation scenario. No, I think we've covered it. Okay. Um, so yeah, Angel starts to not feel well. Um, vampires don't get sick, but 
he gets sick and that seems to be enough for everybody to say, you go get some rest. <laughs> you're, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, you're not worried. Vampires don't get sick, but like, you're clearly sick. Go, go sleep it off. You're fine. Especially um, for someone like Fred who wants to like study and analyze like everything. Like, sure. oh, this, this is like a new interesting medical marvel. Vampires getting sick. Right. I've never heard of this before. Maybe we should look right. at you. Right, but no, just go sleep it off. You're fine. Um, yeah, so he starts having a series of, you know, what you don't realize at first are, like, very vivid kind of dreams and nightmares. Sure. And, you know. Um, they get a little more fantastical as they go Yeah, on. and I think after the first one or two, you know, like, whenever we're with Angel, we're pretty much in kind of dream state, um, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess it's, is it the first one is kind of with Wesley, the like, you know, tucking him in and, and kind of Wesley saying, uh, well, no, coming... the first one is Spike with the cup, right? That's right. Oh, yes, that's right. You're right. There's the kind of, uh, opening prologue, which I what, completely what... forgot about. Where it's like almost exactly the same as what actually happened, but then just that right, slight the, change at the end yeah. of him sort of getting burned up. Yeah, yep, yep. You're right. I, I, the way I had my notes ordered, I completely forgot about that opening scene. So yeah, and and getting immediately kind of launching into yeah, like yes, these are dreams and visions, and they're not real, but they're playing with his fears and insecurities of, you know, that Spike drinks from the goblet and it actually means something. It's not just Mountain Dew, but actually signifies that Spike is the worthy champion. Um, well, it might still be Mountain Dew, but now it's, you know, magical. Magical Mountain Dew. Um, uh, isn't all Mountain Dew magical, really? Think about it. Sure. Um, uh, yeah, so... Right, and then so then you get the Wesley one, where like that one is more crafted to be like, oh, is Wesley somehow causing? Because I you get that like mm -hmm. look, like he like looks over at him as you know angels getting on the elevator or whatever, um, and then like the next minute you see like Wesley in his room, like, oh, is this is there an attack coming or is there some is Wesley the one maybe causing? Mm -hmm these dreams and then i mean you get the you get the attack in the dream but yeah yeah then you, you know the realization that it's a dream right and again with these kind of subconscious anxieties and fears like just the simple fact of wesley turning on him um mm -hmm. is significant like again we know that angel at least remembers the betrayal and you know yeah. i think this is clearly something that he might have made a decision to forgive Wesley, but he hasn't let go of that fear, um, you know, and suspicion of kind of Wesley's sort of turncoat potential. Um, so yeah, so he, you know, stakes him in the, in the dream and then when Angel wakes up or you, you know, he seems to wake up, he keeps kind of waking up. It's, we're sort of in a like inception world where it's like, different layers of 
you wake up and you're still in just a different layer of dream. Right. Um, so, yeah. So he, uh, and then, and then Fred comes in and um, kind of snaps her gloves and is in Dr. Scrubs and uh, starts <laughs> dissecting him. Um, yeah. Pulling out all his organs and then like, like, like he's a tiger shark, like all the random junk he's swallowed over the years. Like, right. Well, the, it's a Jaws reference, right? That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. This floated <laughs> down the Gulf Stream and, um, yeah. And his empty goldfish bowl soul and, uh, and his little dried up walnut. Um, Art, yeah. Yeah. Right. Kind of, again, harking back to the, was it? numero cinco with the whole like well the monster who wants your heart doesn't want angel because there's nothing to take right. um right yeah um and then we get to the spike and buffy in bed so maybe here's a good point to talk about with fred with the kind of di dissection scene and then the spike scene like you mentioned they do get increasingly fantastical these kind of delusions and i know you definitely wanted to bring up the kind of style of the direction um and like the fact that borealis is doing it i guess is yeah so kind of well so he, there's like i'm sure had opinions about the way it should be done and you know there's a couple of things there yeah so i mean obviously like and i feel like with those dream sequences it's definitely like we've talked about the influence of the um writer versus the editor or the editor, the director in yeah. um episodes like this but i do feel like there's some moments where like the direction is definitely like mm -hmm. given more and i think in some of these like highly styled like yeah the best written script can't do like lorne you know honky-tonk lorne like you can say like honky-tonk lorne but there's a lot of like set direction and photography mm -hmm. direction that like has to go into making that work. And then there's a lot of blame on the director when things like, you know, Buffy with the overdub, like, like wig, blonde wig Buffy with the overdub yeah. from, you know, like season one of Buffy the Vampire Slayer about going to the prom or whatever season it was, one of the early seasons. Um, you know, talking about, like, yeah, just the whole prom thing, and, like, how bad that ends up. Like, there's definitely um, a lot of the directorial decision going into that. But kind of one of the moments that actually makes me sort of, that I just sort of assume, I guess, that is highly, you know, a, an aspect of his direction mm -hmm. is... Um, when you get the singing of he's a jolly good fellow and all that to spike and like he you know uh angel just sort of like turns away and like the slump and pushes like the mail cart. starts pushing the mail yeah. cart which yeah. i guess would be another reference back to the numero cinco right, right? right. like um just that idea of like yeah he's sunk to maybe the lowest position <laughs> in the company the lowest he can and, think of and just has this like overly like two year old toddler reaction right. to like what's going on. 
of the it's the worst you know the literal worst has happened of spike becoming a real boy um well in the little like shirt and tie that he's in that like very like um I don't know even what words to describe it, but you know what I mean? Like, like it looks just like boring office drone, you know, like, sure. It like, it's nothing. It's totally unimportant, irrelevant. Yeah. Totally unangel and not cool or like not cool, like leather coat biting up bad guys and not cool in a kind of like executive power suit kind of way. It's like, yeah, he's just, one of the employees and like you said kind of at the bottom of the barrel so um yeah that's a good so uh, that's, and, and that's i a think good scene i mean obviously there's a lot of acting in there but like i like i i would find it hard i mean there's some very good directors in angel and buffy so maybe maybe i'm overstating it but mm-hmm. it it seems like a director trying to explain like what he wants David Boreanaz to do in that either it would just be his decision as an actor on how to act it anyway like and do what he could or or like it just wouldn't come out in the way the sort of director mm-hmm. was trying to describe it like almost by being the director himself is like how you come up with that type of scene sure um, it seems to me right and and right maybe he as the actor could have said, this is the way I want to physically kind of embody this disappointment, but like being in control of the costume and the props and all that helps him create the vision of how can I make this look as dejected as possible? Mm -hmm. Um, So not just being in control of what he can do, but what all the other departments are doing. Um, and yeah, I mean, you kind of said at the beginning, this is very much, at least from the Angel plotline, it's it's about Angel's psyche. So it's kind of nice to have a director who is invested in Angel's character and journey and everything. Um, yeah. It's helpful for these scenes to have him kind of visualizing, all right, how are we really going to communicate these thoughts and feelings? Um, yeah and the spike with the fairy makes me think of Monty Python in the Monty Python's Flying Circus whenever somebody makes a wish there's always a fairy that turns up and it's usually one of the pythons in drag as they do Um, and, and the fairy always says and so you shall and taps them with the wand so I don't know that that's a Monty Python reference, but I feel like it probably is. Um, <laughs> sure. So, uh, yeah. I don't have any way of disproving that, so let's go. With it. It's it since it's the same exact phrasing. I'm gonna go with it. Um, so yeah. All right. So there's Spike kind of is saves the world and turns it into like a Candyland utopia and becomes a real boy again. Um, And then we get Honky Tonk Lauren, as you said, um, who says everything hurts and then we die. Or in your case, everything hurts and then you go on and on and on and on. So he can't, he doesn't even have like the sweet release of death to look forward to. Um, 
and then he's sort of asked to sing and he can't because he you know is empty he has like he, right he's supposed to be the vampire with soul right but he doesn't have any soul left to sing um and then we get gun panther gun um like this ongoing connection between him yeah. and that manifestation um of whatever that conduit to the senior partners is um mm -hmm. that's kind of a fascinating little choice there um don't know what to do with it but i just wanted to note it um Okay, and then we get to, he, you know, kind of does wake up and pulls the thing off him, um, and only to have Eve in the room, who uh, says he's dreaming, but then later doesn't seem that he is in that moment. She's kind of genuinely there and is just replacing, you know, has another parasite sort of ready and waiting to go. Um, yeah, and then we get the kind of sitting in the sun, you know, his fantasy of what his sort of happy ending would be. Um, and the, the, you know, the, the last temptation to just stay there. Um, and all his friends kind of encouraging him like, you know what, this is nice. You've earned the rest. Just enjoy it. Everything you've ever wanted, just sitting in the sun. Um, sure. And then that creepy moment when they all kind of start screaming, um, and and it's Spike there helping right. the helpless. Of, of course, Spike is the one who ruins the one happy dream, right? Right. That he has, right? In the whole right time. interrupts the one good fantasy, <laughs> um, and then rubs it in with the uh, just helping the helpless, um, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, yeah, and then we kind of get the reveal that this was, you know, a parasite that, you know, causes paralysis and these crazy vivid dreams and would have yeah. eventually kind of sucked him in forever. Um, sure. Thanks to Spike, that's not what happened. Um, but he remembers Eve. Spike, who was sent by Doyle, of so, course. Okay, so this is my final question. We can finish with this. Spike, who was sent by Doyle. So, Lindsay, when it's Lindsay and Eve, they're, you know, like, Eve is kind of like, like I said, more ca seems more casual, like, oh, everything's going great. What are you kind of, like, let's get it on. What are you worried about? Um, and Lindsay's the one saying, like, did you, is it going well? What's happening? Did you do what you're supposed to do? Um, so the fact that at the end, you know, Spike is sent there on the advice of Doyle. Um, does that mean that Lindsay sold Eve out? Um, you know, I don't, either, no. either, either set her up to kind of take the fall or kind of made the decision to kind of let her get caught. I, I don't know. That was my question at the end. Um, because, so, you know, well, well I, I already well, started kind of answering, so I'll, I guess I like sort of showed my hand. So I think some of this I, comes down I to think, we don't we, we don't know whether this is 
according to plan or not. Like, I think okay. it is according to plan. So I, I think Spike was I think always the, supposed I think to the say way that angel. we're supposed I think the way that we're supposed to read this is that Spike is that they set Angel up to be in a helpless position where Spike saves him and and sort of solidifies the idea that Spike is supposed to be the true champion. Mm -hmm. I think the wrinkle is when Angel kills the first one on his own. I don't mm -hmm. think that that, I mean, Eve is there like checking up on him and happens to have another one, you know, to place on him and he can sort of write it off. But I think that's the mistake. I don't gotcha. necessarily think that, like, I think the plan all along is to have Spike, you know, rescue Angel. Mm -hmm. And so I think Eve is like sort of thinking on her feet when she's like, oh, did I have a part in your little fantasies? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, how sweet or whatever she says. Like, I think she's just trying to cover her up. But I think I think that was the unanticipated thing was that Angel would actually detect and be able to mm -hmm. kill the first, you know, uh, parasite on his own. Okay. And, and so the way I read it is that, you know, when when they become suspicious of Eve, it's because of that particular... I don't know if you want to call it a mistake or, you know, whatever. Um, that does it. Not that I don't, I don't think we're meant to see it as Lindsay selling out Eve. Mm -hmm. But I like, I mean, I don't have hard evidence to say that like, it's not Lindsay selling out Eve either. So mm -hmm. like, that could be a way that you might read it. But that's just my interpretation is that the mistake is sure. is earlier and that, that Spike was always meant, like, they were always planning on having Spike mm -hmm. save Angel because it sort of solidifies the idea in Spike's mind that he's a better hero than right. Angel, the corrupt CEO of Wolfram and Hart. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I think I was or, kind of... Or corrupt might be too hard. The compromised, maybe, CEO of Wolfram and Hart. Right, right, right. Helpless CEO. Um, yeah, I was kind of latching on to... Lindsay's sort of questioning of Eve, like, um, you know, have you done it? Is it going well? All that kind of thing and kind of extrapolating from that. But no, what yeah. you're saying makes sense. I take that more as him just wanting to make sure things go perfectly to plan. And, and in that interpretation, I think you're right. Like when you said earlier that Eve seems a little more maybe lackadaisical about it. Mm -hmm. Um, in that she seems to be like, oh, everything's fine, when in fact everything's not fine because Angel kills the first parasite on his own. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe maybe it's more Lindsay just wants to make sure things go perfectly and Eve's less concerned about that. Like, she just wants to get it on, apparently. But, like, you know, is, is a little more um, lax than maybe she should be. Mm -hmm. Um and and that and like Lindsay's questions proved to be valid there because it seems like things don't go quite according to plan, even if they mostly are still right the plan. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That that makes sense. So she does get caught, but it's not. 
it's not necessarily or even probably because I don't think, Lindsay I don't think it's intended for that to happen. Yeah. Um, okay. So, yeah. So, they sort of catch her and they sort of have a confrontation, but, like, it's not, like, a real confrontation. Like, she leaves. Um, they're not, like, 100% convinced that she was behind it, but they're, like, 97% convinced. Like they're, <laughs> they're pretty convinced. They're pretty but convinced, yeah. but they, they're not to the point where they're like, quick, don't let her leave the building. Like, you know, she's allowed to sort of, there's enough doubt that they kind of let her go. And, and you know, there have been incidents lately where it seemed that they were suspicious of her and she kind of was vindicated and everything. So there's a bit of a sense of they're they're trying to give her the benefit of the doubt um but so this is this is not looking good for eve here's a question for you is she actually someone who talks to the senior partner um do we have any evidence we have no evidence of that other than her own assertion that she is I mean, because we have the conduit to the senior partners. Mm-hmm. Why do we also have Eve? Right. And is, yeah. is I mean, there so any we evidence? Don't have any reason to think that she outside does. of yeah, outside of her own words that she is actually someone who has I an guess, in I with mean, the senior partner. The only thing I can think of is, don't the senior partners know an awful lot, and why would they have allowed her to? continued and you know continue in this position like what's protecting her from the the scrutiny of the senior partners is my question um so yeah maybe or does Lindsay's tattoo somehow protect her as well sure sure yeah and maybe it's something like that like she has some magical you know barrier that means they don't realize what she's up to um, yeah. because that's or the even only... no, like maybe they can't even detect her right 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 yeah anyway i and or or she totally is who she says she is and she's also working with Lindsay. Mm-hmm. i just i just wanted to kind of throw that out there to say like yeah like do we have enough evidence to actually verify or be verify like whatever the proper term is for that mm-hmm. um you know what the whether or not she actually is connected to the senior partners at all even mm-hmm. or if that's just is this like a you know what you know people in some companies are just good at making their own position right like is this what she just like she saw an opportunity and she said okay i'm going to be liaison to the senior partners and right, right. she's actually not thought I'd throw that out there. It's a good question. Um, so yeah, so good stuff. Um, we'll get some more Angel next week, though. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, we'll, we'll be getting the return of another character that mm. we haven't seen in a little while. Um, and I won't say who. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, we'll... We'll get that and uh, 
we'll get uh, obviously some more uh, strange and gnarl on the content. Strange and gnarl. Uh, yeah. Anyway. All right. Definitely late. We should end now. So. Sounds good. See you then. Thank <laughs> you.